0: This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, Copycat Caffrey. This is White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. As a reminder, one of the things that you can do The best thing that you can do to help this podcast grow is to share it with a friend. If you know somebody who is a fan of White Collar and they are not familiar with this podcast, let them know about it and encourage them to take a listen. No guarantee they'll like it, of course, but who knows? They may thank you for it later. So let's get into the episode. Copycat Caffrey first aired on July 27th. 2010, was written by Channing Powell, and directed by Paul Holohan. Someone is copycatting famous thefts and thieves, Neil included. The clues seem to point to a college professor and his students, but if it is the professor and his students, catching them may be difficult because they're not just copying famous thefts, they have unexpectedly improved on them. In the meantime, Alex has returned. It seems someone involved in the intrigue related to the music box has been applying pressure. The person she has trusted to help her seems to be ready to turn on her, and she has no other choice but to turn to Mozzie and Neil for help. Peter and Neil have a new case. A painting's been stolen.
1: I hope you're not admiring your own work. I wish I was. Let me see that. Louis Thayer's untitled number two. It's worth four million. You'd think for that kind of money, he'd bother bothered to come up with a title. It is one of his seminal pieces. Is it a fad or talent that drives up the price? Both. Neither.
2: Don't try to understand the peculiarities of the pop art market. Would you pay four million for that? Hey. Yeah, you're the wrong guy to ask.
0: Hey, in case you're not aware of it, Louis Thayer is not a real painter, and the Lamson Gallery is not a real gallery. But even though the Lamson Gallery is not a real gallery, the name may be a reference to an actual individual, specifically one Edward Lamson Henry, who was born in 1841, died in 1919. He was a painter of colonial and early American themes and incidents of rural life. He was a preservationist who treasured the United States' 18th century past. And in addition to his depictions of nostalgic and historical scenes, he actively worked in the preservation of historic landmarks such as Independence Hall in Philadelphia. After that setup scene, Peter and Neil meet with the curator of the gallery. The robbery was a down-and-dirty slash-and-grab, as Peter describes it. And Neil says, well, that's about the only way to accomplish a theft of painting like that these days due to high security systems. The curator tells Peter that as part of the gallery security system, sensors are placed on the frames of the art pieces, but nothing is attached to the canvases themselves. This means that the thieves had to have enough knowledge about the gallery's security system to know that. Now, if one were intent on stealing paintings from a major gallery, it would seem rational to research their security system. My guess is that there are probably some standard security measures in systems that are used in art galleries and art museums. So finding out this information might not be too hard. But the curator also says that the theft occurred during the gallery's daily security tape swap. So there's now no video showing the robbery itself. These two factors tell Peter that the people who pulled off the theft aren't amateurs. What Peter doesn't say is that in order to pull off a heist right at the time of the security tape swap. The thieves had to know the schedule. Now the schedule for the swap would probably not be common knowledge. It certainly also wouldn't be common between the various galleries that employ that specific security system. There might be some factors in common which could be used to deduce certain things about the security system such as the fact that if they're recording it on videotape, the tape has a specified length and they're probably changed at set intervals that they can can calculate. But the specific and exact time that this particular gallery does the security tape swap wouldn't be something that would be deductible or deducible just from general observation and general study of the security system. This could suggest that there was an insider or someone with connections to someone at the gallery that would be a source of that information, because it doesn't seem to me that that information would have been available by any other means. The last part of the conversation between Peter and Neil and the gallery curator is about the story of the theft being given to the press, with the curator telling Peter that the gallery was not the source of the story. Next, we see Peter, Neil, Jones, and Diana discussing the story being leaked to the press and the circumstances that would have led to that happening. They decide that there's a good chance that the thieves themselves called in the anonymous tip and that they're using the story to attract black market buyers and that they probably want to move the painting quickly. Peter assigns each of them to a different area uh, to check in an effort to locate the painting. Neil is to sound out his street contacts, Diana to check out European sources, and Jones to check out Asian sources, and Peter references something called ALAT. ALAT is an acronym that stands for Assistant Legal Attaché. According to the March 2004 audit report of the Federal Bureau of Investigation Legal Attaché Program, which is by the U.S. Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General Audit Division. The Federal Bureau of Investigation operates offices known as legal attaches or legats. Uh, They have these in about 46 locations around the world. Special agents are assigned to these offices to work with their counterparts in foreign countries to obtain information for the FBI on crimes and criminals that could harm U.S. citizens or interests. The 46 ad offices are staffed by approximately 120 special agents and 75 support personnel. Most offices are staffed by a legal attaché, one assistant legal attaché, the ALAT, and one office assistant, although some of the larger offices have 10 or more permanent staff members. Back in the episode, Neil calls Mozzie because he's good at this sort of thing. Mozzie is immediately interested and asks about any rewards that might be being offered for the recovery of the paintings, and then he says he's on it. Next, we see Neil and Mozzie meeting at a park. Mozzie is acting a bit strange. Even for Mozzie, he's acting a bit strange. He has an umbrella, which he keeps tapping on the sidewalk, and he's talking in an unusually loud voice. It's 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 another case of really bad acting by Mozzie. We saw that in the pilot episode where he did the, the loud talking so somebody could overhear him bad acting type thing in the scene with the cigarette and Jones. So he's back to his bad acting again. Anyway, between his bad acting and his strange behavior and the fact that Mozzie apparently found some information about the painting and its location in less than an hour Combined with the fact that he specifically asked about a reward, which Neil says is out of character for Mozzie, Neil knows that Mozzie's up to something. And that something, or rather that someone, is Alex. Alex has been having problems. After the plane blew up with Kate on board, people began asking questions. And apparently, many of those questions involve the music box and those questions are making things hot for anyone connected to the music box. And since Alex was involved in the theft of the music box from the Italian consulate, somebody's made the connection, and so Alex is trying to put some distance between herself and the music box. You remember that she had been reluctant to get involved with the music box again, although her reasons really had as much or more to do with the Neil-Kate relationship than anything else. But this new development is really... Putting her in a bind, and she's probably very seriously regretting her decision now to join in the theft of the music box with Neil. And she definitely seems to be put out with Neil about the whole situation, so much so that she doesn't seem to want to talk to him, to the point of very specifically saying that the only reason she's there is to talk to Mozzie, not Neil. She does tell Neil that she found out that Thayer Painting is in Dubai. Neil tries to press her for the real reasons she's there. Because again, she is just maintaining that she's there just to talk to Mozzie. Not to, to see Neil, not even to give him the information about Thayer painting, really. Just there to talk to Mozzie. But Neil can't make an issue of it too much because he gets a phone call. It's from Peter, and Peter says he's found out news about the Thayer painting. Neil goes back to the FBI offices, but it seems that everyone has found the painting.
2: I found the painting. How would you find it? I found it. It was fenced to a textile magnate in Dubai. A hotel
1: heiress in Budapest just turned hers in. Scotland Yard has it. They're forgeries. All of them. How do you know? Because custom clamps down when a theft occurs. The risk of getting the original out are too
2: high. But if you make the forgeries ahead of time and take them out of the country before the heist, you're in the clear. Steal the fair, leak the theft of the press, then sell the forgeries. And the original never leaves the country.
1: You've seen the scam before. I know someone who- Allegedly. Allegedly pulled it off before. We have a copycat on our hands. Who are they
0: copycatting? Me. Clearly, Neil is pleased at having been copycatted. He has an ego about his skills as a con man, as a theft. And the fact that he's being copycatted is just an affirmation of his skills. So, yeah, he's proud of it. In the next scene, we see Peter, Neil, and the gallery curator studying what we can presume are the forgeries, which were reported as having been in Britain, Dubai, and Budapest. The curator confirms that they are all, in fact, forgeries. But as Neil's studying them, something seems to have captured his attention.
2: Neil, I don't think our forger went off a photograph. I think they stood in front of the original when they painted these. Thayer used the Day dots method to show shading. He spread paint across a paper stencil and pushed it against the canvas with a brush. The shadowing in these paintings is more deliberate. It's minute, but these dots grow starker at the bottom. Forger probably started these in afternoon light when the color was slightly more red. They also didn't realize they caught the painting when the light was pouring directly down on it, causing a deeper contrast at the bottom. There's no lighting
1: overhead. Was this painting ever hanging below that skylight? Yes, in late April. And we should check the registration log for April.
2: Probably looking for a student, talented, but still
1: experimenting with technique. Someone like Justin McGarry from Eastside University. He stopped by at the 21st of April at 1.45. That would be afternoon light.
0: Neil says that Thayer used the Bende Dots method to show shading. So what is Day? What is the Benday Dots method? Well... To understand Bende Dots, you also have to understand where they came from, which is halftone. And to understand halftone, you have to understand printing. A printing press uses custom-made plates, generally made from metal, although in past made of different materials such as wood, that bear the image or the text to be reproduced. Basically, these plates work like giant rubber stamps. They're inked and the image is transferred to the paper By means of pressure. Each plate is inked with a single color of ink. Because the plates can only be coated with a single color of ink, there is no option for multiple colors, just one color. And because that one color is pressed onto the paper in one continuous push, even pressure being applied in order to transfer the ink evenly from the plate to the paper There's also no option for shades of that same basic color that's on the plate. So if it's black, it's going to print black. It's not going to be able to print shades of gray because technically those are different colors. Even though they're still based in black, they're different colors because they are different shades of black. Shading or various shades of gray can be simulated by hatching or stippling. And so these can be used to create the appearance of various shades of that base color. But it's just an illusion because, again, all the printing is made using the single base color. The problem of shading and color is expanded or compounded even more when you're trying to uh, duplicate a photograph, uh, a pencil illustration, a painting, or any original source that has multiple colors and multiple tones given the inherent limitations of printing a single color at a time no shades of that color the only way that a continuous tone can be or seem to be reproduced is by means of a clever workaround because there's no other way to do it the original workaround was known as half tone this was originally created in the 1850s and once you understand it, you realize it's really just a more refined version of the basic concept behind crosshatching or stippling. But where the plates used to create cross-hatching or stippling printing could be done by hand, the continuous tone process is such that it really couldn't be done without the use of photographic technology. It works like this. During the process of creating the printing plates, a person would place a fine screen of perpendicular intersecting lines between the film and the original image that they're looking to reproduce. The material of the screen blocks out portions of the image, essentially breaking up the continuous tones of the image into thousands of tiny dots of varying sizes, larger and closer together where the image is dark, and smaller and farther apart where the image is light. And these dots are retained when the image that was created on the film of the original photographed through that physical screen those dots are retained when that is transferred to the printing plate when printed the dots are usually so small that they would require a magnifying glass to be seen the contrast between the dots and the white paper that they're printed on creates an optical illusion the eye doesn't perceive the dots but rather an image of continuous and varying tones So in this way, a single plate can print with one color of ink in such a way that it appears as a variety of shades and tints within that color. Halftoning is also used for printing color pictures. The general idea is the same, but you create four printing plates created from the original image shot through that screen, and each one of those screen images reproduces only one of the four basic colors from the source image. The four basic colors are cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Then by using each of those plates to print the colors onto the page, one on top of the other, the varying densities and sizes of the dots for each of the four colors in relationship to the densities and sizes of the dots of the other colors can result in any particular color or shade of color seemingly being reproduced. But again, it's all an optical illusion. It's just a bunch of dots of varying sizes and densities combining to create the appearance of various colors. Bende dots, which was developed around the late 1870s, is similar to the halftone dot process, but it differs from it in that the Bende dots are always of equal size and equal distribution within a specific area. And to apply the dots for printing, an artist typically would purchase transparent overlay sheets, which were available in a wide variety of dot sizes and distributions from a stationary supplier. The overlay material would then be cut into shapes corresponding to the areas that they desire to tone a shadow, a background treatment, or whatever and rubbed onto those specific areas with a burnisher. Neil says our fictitious artist. Thayer, spread paint across paper stencils and pushed it against the canvas with a brush. His explanation is a bit unclear in how he says it. Uh, to be consistent with what he says about Thayer using the Bende process, I think what Neil is meaning is that a paper stencil was created with the equally sized and equally spaced dots that were cut out of it, and the stencil was placed against the canvas, and then the paint was spread across the stencil pushing the paint through the openings in the stencil and onto the canvas. That's not exactly how he says it. The way he says it is is a little bit confusing, but I think that's what he's really meaning. Neil also says he thinks the forger stood in front of the original when they painted the forgeries, and that the shadowing in the forgeries is more deliberate. That makes sense, because if the forger was standing in front of the original in the gallery, when creating the copies, they almost by necessity would be reproducing the image using brushes only, no stencil. But this probably wouldn't have been a big deal because most people would probably have never noticed that level of detail. He also says the forger probably started the forgeries in the afternoon light when the color was slightly more red and that they didn't realize that the light was pouring down on it directly and causing a deeper contrast at the bottom. I think this is where we start to see a problem with the forger, which is, I think, what Neil picked up on, which led him to say to look for a student in the registration logs for the time when the painting was being hung below the skylight, which it was not at the time of the robbery. An experienced forger would likely have either been familiar enough with Thayer, the original painting, or both to catch the issues of the inaccurate color reproduction and the contrast issues due to the lighting. And an experienced forager would have realized that these two things might be noticeable to non-experts who are familiar with their and the originals. The dots issue is a little more subtle, but colors, I think, are probably for many people much more noticeable. It doesn't take that close of an eye to notice the difference, at least not as close of an eye as it would to notice the issue with the dots, the spacing, and the sharpness of the edges of them. After this, we see Peter and Neil walking on the college campus. And we learn more about Peter's background. His father worked in construction, because he mentions his father having a construction salary. Peter attended college for four years on a math scholarship, and then two additional years beyond the scholarship, which presumably he had to pay for out of pocket. Back in the pilot episode, I mentioned that Peter seems to have a fair amount of disdain for agents whose pedigrees include prestigious colleges such as Harvard. I don't think our learning here that he spent six years in college invalidates my earlier assessment. Might seem like it, but I don't, I don't really think it does. Scholarships can be difficult to obtain, but they are easy to lose. You have to keep your grades up fairly high, consistently high, in order to keep your scholarship. And although scholarships will generally cover the cost of tuition, they don't always cover the costs associated with going to school beyond that, such as books, which can cost hundreds of dollars each. Uh, Trust me on that one. I know I had a book when I was attending college that was a couple hundred dollars just for a single book. Scholarships generally aren't going to cover the cost of food transportation and so on so even before his four-year scholarship ran out and he had to cover the last two years of his accounting study out of his own pocket he probably had to work just to survive and have a life and I'm going to say he probably saw other students who were living high off the hog on their parents money while not taking their studies seriously and who either barely passed but still bragged about the degree in education and I put that in sarcasm quotes or whose parents essentially bought their degrees. Or perhaps that's how it appeared to Peter at the time. But it would be understandable that he might begin to view them with condescension. And he's just carried that attitude forward to the agents who he also perceives as having been treated as the golden child like those he saw in college. Neil does pick up on Peter's attitude as evidenced by his comment, are we bitter that we weren't invited to the party? We also learned that Peter was an athlete in college. We don't know what sport. I'm going to say baseball, probably because all we know from past episodes, he's a basketball fan. And I refer you back to the first season episode of The Portrait, where he is listening to a basketball game while he and Neil are in the car outside the hotel waiting for Ger- uh, Jared Dorset. He wasn't tall enough to be your typical basketball player, and he isn't built like a football player. So I'm going to say baseball until more information comes along to point to something else. But since he was in school on a math scholarship, he evidently wasn't enough of an outstanding player to get an athletic scholarship. Or at least he was better at math than he was at athletics. So he got a better scholarship for mathematics. But between the math scholarship and being an athlete in college, Neal calls Peter a mathlete, which seems to make sense on the surface. Someone who's an athlete and is also a math geek. Put those two words together, math, athlete, athlete. Peter seems to accept this interpretation of the word in as much as he not only doesn't challenge the interpretation, but even seems to accept the premise of the statement when he says, no, I was an athlete who was good at math except that's not really quite what a mathlete is. Now, the term is a combination of the words mathematics and athlete, but it really has nothing to do with athletics. The second part of the word is actually derived from the Greek word for discipline. A mathlete is, generally speaking, a person who competes in mathematic competitions at any age or level. The term mathlete and the concept of mathletics were the brainchild of J. Brian Sullivan. A teacher since 1965 who was at one time the president of the National Math League and math league coach of Hudson, Massachusetts and Western Massachusetts region, Sullivan started what was called Mathletics in 1972. The term mathlete entered pop culture from the movies American Pie and the 2004 movie Mean Girls, as well as being featured in the short-lived cult TV series Freaks and Geeks. Although the words mathlete and mathletics can be heard kind of as being used as blanket terms for math competitions and those who compete in them, they are actually specifically students who participate in any of the Math Counts programs, as Mathlete is a registered trademark of the Math Counts Foundation. Back in the episode, Peter and Neil confront their suspected forger at the school, and then take him into the FBI's offices for questioning.
2: A while ago, I answered an ad on the school's list server for reproductions. I get an email back commissioning seven copies of Untitled Number no. 2.
1: Seven? You wonder why somebody would want seven copies.
2: You know how hard it is to make money as an art student doing art? Who hired you? I didn't meet them. They dropped the materials off in my mailbox, and once I'd finished, they said to leave the paintings in the rec center and that the money would be left in my box again. I thought it was weird that they didn't want to meet, so I... So you stayed and watched the pickup. Yeah. I wanted to make sure it was legit, and she seemed normal, so I let it go.
0: Really? She seemed normal. So, it was all suspicious. It was weird. It didn't seem right. But she seemed normal. That's the reason he used to decide that what was being asked of him to produce seven copies of a single painting wasn't suspicious. The fact that they didn't want to meet wasn't suspicious. The fact that they did everything as a blind drop wasn't suspicious. That's the reasoning he used? No rational person would have thought any of this wasn't suspicious. And his excuse for doing something so highly questionable in the first place was, do you know how hard it is to make money as an art student doing art? What? Did he not know making money as an art student doing art wasn't going to be easy? Was this some sort of surprise for him? Is he so stupid or arrogant or so drenched in self-entitlement that he thinks that people are just going to throw money at him because he's an art student? And that doing things that are so highly questionable that no rational person would do them can be excused because it's hard to make money as an art student? If this is what colleges are turning out these days, the human race is doomed, as far as I can tell. Because this is totally, this is total stupidity on his part. Red flags should have been going up all over the place when he was approached on this. There was nothing about that situation that could even be remotely twisted into seeming reasonable or normal or rational, or legitimate. And the fact that he needed money doesn't justify doing something like that. Anyway, after this, Neil returns to his apartment where Mozzie and Alex are having a bit of an argument. Since the music box gave her, somebody has been making things tough for Alex. She needs cash, and her plan has been to sell enough crew grants to finance her disappearance. But it seems that the guy Mozzie had set her up with to fence them, a guy named Russell Smith, suddenly realized that somebody was interested in Alex and decided that there was more money in selling her out than in helping her. Alex is wanting and expecting Mozzie to shut up Russell Smith, but she seems to not want Neil's involvement or help. But Mozzie is just as obviously intent on getting Neil involved and forcing Alex to accept Neil's help. But since Mozzie has no clue on how to stop Smith from turning Alex over to them, whoever the them happens to be, it doesn't seem that she has much choice but to accept Neil's help. However, I can't help but think that Alex knew exactly what was going to happen, that Mozzie would, in fact, involve Neil. And not only did she come to Mozzie in spite of that, my suspicion is she came to Mozzie because of that. She didn't want to admit she wanted and needed Neil's help, but she did want and need Neil's help. And by acting as if she didn't want his help, but just wanted Mozzie's help, she knew she was going to get Neil, too. So I think, really, that was all kind of part of her plan to begin with. But since the subject has been brought up, let's talk about Kruger for a minute. Krugerrands are gold bullion coins minted in South Africa. The Krugerrands were first minted in 1967 as a vehicle for private ownership of gold and to help market South African gold. It was a co-production of the South African Mint and the Rand Refinery, which is a precious metals refining company. The coin's name is a mashup of the name Paul Kruger, the first Boer president of the country, who served from 1883 till the turn of the century in 1900, and RAND, which is the basic unit of currency in South Africa. By 1980, the Krugerrand accounted for more than 90% of the gold coin market around the world, and it was the number one choice for investors who wanted to buy gold. But economic sanctions against South Africa for its policies of apartheid made the Krugrand an illegal import in many Western countries during the 1970s and 1980s, with the United States, which had historically been the largest market for the coin, banning imports in 1985. Most of the sanctions ended in 1991 after the South African government took steps toward ending its apartheid policies. Curiously enough, Although gold Krugerrand coins have no face value, they are considered legal tender in South Africa by the South African Reserve Bank Act of 1989. Next, we see Diana briefing Peter on a new suspect, Veronica Nayland, who is a junior, majoring in archaeology and with mediocre grades, as Peter puts it, but somehow pulling an A in a criminology course which is so anomalous as to positively scream for attention. They had been able to identify her from the sketch that had been drawn by our rocket scientist art student. And yes, I do use that term rocket scientist with the greatest degree of sarcasm. Peter's description of her grades as being mediocre is perhaps a bit more than generous on his part. I looked closely at the school transcripts that appeared on the screen as part of her dossier, and although it is difficult to read, it appears that with the exception of the aforementioned criminology class, her grades are predominantly D's, with the remainder being a mix of C's and F's. Yeah, mediocre, I would say, is a bit of an understatement. Now, despite the obvious and reasonable questions about Naylan, there's really nothing concrete to connect her and the art student. The email account that was being used to communicate with the art student, Justin Magry, had been closed and Diana describes it as having been generic, which means that at least some measure of care was given to choosing an email address with, which didn't reveal anything about the person using it. It was probably just a series of random numbers and general words or word or words, New York 123, or email account 123. Further, both the ad and the email account were created at the school computer lab, so anyone really could have done it. Of course, the capper to the conversation between Peter and Diana is that she presents Peter with a copy of the syllabus for that criminology course that Nalan was acing. And though it isn't specifically stated, we realize from Peter's comment, he's going to be impossible after this, that Neil is a featured element of the course. Next, we see Neil cutting out copies of newspaper articles about the theft, presumably for a scrapbook or maybe to send out to friends and family. Who knows? Peter asks Neil to detail the scam. He's essentially looking for confirmation of his belief that they're looking at something larger than just two people and that the two people that they know about and suspect probably needed help coming up with the plan. Neil seems to confirm Peter's suspicions. Peter says, well, they may have figured out how they came up with the scheme, which was by studying Neil." And Peter shows Neal the syllabus for the criminology course that their female suspect has been taking. And Neil is positively giddy to read that an entire week was devoted to the study of him and his criminal activities including something called the Antioch Manuscripts. Peter decides that it's too risky for him to talk to Veronica, so they decide to have Neil give it a try. Next, we see Neil sitting amongst a crowd of students in a college lecture hall where Professor George Oswald is detailing the heist of the Crotert Diamond Pearl by Gerald Blanchard. There really is a Gerald Blanchard, there really is a Crochert Diamond Pearl, also known as the Sissy Star, and Blanchard really did steal it. Moreover, the Crochert Diamond Pearl was just one of a myriad of audacious crimes he committed in a spree that began in high school and lasted over 25 years. And even though Blanchard admitted the and proved it by returning the real Crochert Diamond Pearl to the authorities... Austria never prosecuted Blanchard. In fact, it was only as a result of the Canadian police catching him for another crime that the star was even returned. Now, I really wanted to give you some background on Gerald Blanchard because this guy is amazing. He is, in a sense, a Neil Caffrey. But as I was going through the history of his crimes and trying to present them with enough detail that they made sense, it just kept going and going and going and i realized i couldn't put all of that into this episode and keep it keep the episode a reasonable length of time so i will probably do a special episode at the end of the season dedicated to the real crimes and criminals mentioned in white collar season 2 with blanchard and the crocher diamond pearl being one of them but anyway back into the episode after neil publicly comments on blanchard's crime Disputing the assertion that it was the perfect crime, the professor coaxes Neil to the front of the class to answer questions from the students. And Neil does. But after the class is over, Neil begins to press the professor on his involvement in the theft of the Thayer.
2: Thank you so much, Mr. Caffrey. Oh, no. That's it. it's the least I could do. You know, I, I should participate in my own copyright infringement. Excuse me? a little green to rip off someone's con unless you improve it. You and your kids could use a little tutoring. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. The they theft? Hey, don't get me wrong, man. I'm flattered. But uh, I like that he cut in. You know, I did lay the groundwork. Once again, we
0: have a case of Neil improvising. The plan was for him to talk to Veronica Nalen, not the professor. And at this point, there's really nothing that is pointing to the professor as being the Fagan of this caper. Granted, the class he was teaching would certainly be fertile soil for cultivating a modern Jack Dawkins, and Neil seems to recognize that. But the fact that the class could be used in that way doesn't mean that it is. And it doesn't mean that it is being used that way by the professor. It could just be that this is an extracurricular project by a bunch of students. But Neil is nothing if not perpetually lucky, and the professor seems to be kind of nibbling at the bait when he tells Neil that he meets with a group of students outside of class, and invites Neil to join them. Back at the FBI offices, Peter, Diana, and Neil are listening back to the recording of the Q and A that Neil had in the professor's classroom. And this is a conversation that Neil had recorded using that little spy recording pen of his, and. The the recording includes the part where Neil told the class that the FBI really didn't catch him, that he essentially turned himself in. So, as a result, Peter takes just a little bit more than a perverse pleasure in bursting Neil's bubble by telling him that, well, he's not the only person the thieves have been copying. It seems that many of the crimes and criminals in the course syllabus for the past 10 years have been copycatted during that time. Including Tokali Perry, who, like Blanchard, is a real person who also committed a series of audacious crimes involving the theft and smuggling of priceless historic artifacts. And like Blanchard, the scope and intricacy of the crimes committed by Tokley Perry are so incredible that again, when I tried to encapsulate them for this episode, I realized I would have again ran up with an episode that ran close to several hours. So in that special episode at the end of season two that I'm, I'm seriously considering doing Tokley Perry would be included in there as well. During this meeting and conference, Peter expresses his concern for the art student, Justin Magry. and Peter's theory is that Oswald is behind the crimes, and it's a good theory, but at this point, that's all it is. There's really nothing that actually points to that being the case, and if they don't find something, Justin is going to take the fall for the whole thing, and this concerns Peter. And to be perfectly honest, Peter's more concerned and seemingly forgiving of Justin than I am. Sure, he isn't the mastermind behind the theft of the painting or the fraud connected with selling the forgeries. He's just a dupe. But in my book, he's not an innocent dupe. He knew that the gig that was offered was probably not on the up and up. He basically admitted as much. He should have walked away. He could have walked away. But he chose to do it anyway. In my book, he does share some of the responsibility because without the forgeries that he made, the crime couldn't have happened, and he supplied the forgeries. So he should suffer some consequences for his actions, but I agree. He shouldn't have to have the entire thing come down on his shoulders. But he does need to take some responsibility and be held responsible for his participation in it, which you can't say was ignorant participation. He might have been ignorant of the facts of the crime, but he wasn't ignorant of the fact that there was probably something wrong in the situation to begin with that should have led him to suspect that there might have been a crime involved. Anyway, it seems that the only option that Peter and Neil have to get Oswald involved and tie him to it is to get him to reveal the location of the original Thayer painting. The problem is that the fences who sold the foragers overseas know that they're being watched, so they can't be used to smoke out Oswald. And since Customs is probably still on high alert, whatever they do will probably have to be done using people within the United States. So they need to steer Oswald to a local fence who is in the FBI's pocket, or at least someone that they can set up in such a way as to be of use to them, even if the fence doesn't really know that they're being used by the FBI. Neil seems to take Oswald up on his invitation to meet with him and some of the students at the Globe Bar, although when we see the group of students together with Neil Oswald isn't there yet. And, of course, Neil's pouring on the charm. He's showing off his skills in sleight of hand and the art of the con and reveling in the attention he's receiving from the students. Well, from most of the students. One student, Eric, is not impressed. In fact, he is rather dismissive of Neil. He makes it pretty obvious that he thinks that He is at least as good as Neil, if not better, with sarcastic comments like, this is all small time, and tell me something I don't know. Neil challenges the student's ego by telling him, never, ever think you're the smartest guy in the room. Unless you're the smartest guy in the room. Well, the student obviously isn't the smartest guy in the room because he takes the bait. Pro tip, if you want someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do, something that they would otherwise be too smart and rational to do, challenge their ego in such a way that, in order to prove themselves, they have to do what you want them to do. This is a favorite trick of con artists and politicians. But I repeat myself. Neil bets the arrogant student, that he isn't as smart as he thinks he is and that he doesn't know what he's doing like he thinks he does And again, the student proves that he isn't the smartest guy in the room by letting Neil pick the mark, not realizing, of course, that the student himself is the mark. And of course, if the student was as smart as he thought he was, he wouldn't have let Neil pick the supposed mark. Neil looks toward the bar, sees a woman sitting there drinking by himself, and tells the student, what about her? Her turns out to be none other than Alex. The student pulls out the old pick a card, any card trick. Pick a card, look at it, put it back in the deck, and then cut the deck. Of course, he doesn't notice that while cutting the deck, Alex palmed her card. As Eric starts counting out the cards, supposedly coming up to her card that he's going to magically know and point out to her, Alex further ups the ego challenge by saying, eh. Neil doesn't think the student's going to find her card. Then she steps up the challenge to his ego even more by telling him that she bets that Neil is correct, that the student won't find her card, and that she's willing to bet money on it. When he declines to accept the bet, she ratchets up the ego challenge yet even further with her line, what, you can't make bets with girls? And of course, he's humiliated not once, but Twice. First, when he fails to find Alex's card, and then when Professor Oswald comes up, pulls the card that Alex had palmed out of her purse, and reveals that he was, in fact, the one who was scammed by Neil and Alex. I guess, actually, he's humiliated a third time when he finds that Neil has placed the bet money into his pocket, and he didn't even realize it. Oliver congratulates Neil on humbling Eric, which he says isn't an easy thing to do. So I'd say the professor's been having some issues of his own in keeping that particular student in line, which would be an important thing for a Fagin to be able to do with his street urchins. He introduces himself to Alex, and when he asks what she does, besides acting as Neil's inside man, as it were, Neil quickly jumps in with an answer, she's in the moving business. But he doesn't say it casually, as if it's just an unimportant and insignificant thing. He says it in a way that makes it seem as though he's being intentionally obtuse and that he doesn't really want to reveal what she does. And, of course, I would say that was deliberate. I think the goal here is to create the impression that he doesn't want Oswald to know what Alex really does and that he was somehow caught off guard by the question and that the answer hinted at various truths to Oswald without Neil realizing it. One of those truths being the notion that Neil is not truly reformed and could be willingly useful to Oswald, and that Alex is somehow involved in his not quite reformed state. And of course, in the moving business, could be interpreted by Oswald, as we know it's intended to be, as a euphemism for she's a fence. After that exchange, we see Alex and Neil outside the bar having a rather heated discussion over what just happened.
2: Thank you for backing me up in there. Mozzie tells me to come to the bar because you have a plan, and now I'm out 200 bucks, and you're dropping my name. Do you trust me? No. Okay, I assume we're doing more than baiting frat boys with bar tricks. What's with the Dead Poets Society in there? You know, it's my current case and the solution to your problem. Russell wants to meet on Sunday to fence the rest of the Krugerans, but it's a setup. He's gonna sell me out to whoever put the price on my head, and your plan is to bring the feds into it. I tell the FBI that Oswald and his kids are gonna steal the Krugerans. They'll pull Russell in and talk to him. It'll kill his reputation. No one will be buying information off him if they think he's in bed with the bureau. You're crazy. No word. You're crazy. Are you in or are you out?
0: It's entirely understandable that Alex feels like she's being manipulated and used, not only by Neil, but maybe even by Mozzie as well. After all, she was expecting to have Neil provide her with a solution to her problem, which was the message that she got through Mozzie, which sent her to that bar in the first place. But instead, Neil's throwing her name around, which is not a good thing to do when somebody is trying to keep a low profile because somebody's out to get them. And then to top it all off, he's involving her in an FBI case, which gets her involved with the FBI, which is also not a good thing, given her position, and given the fact that they all suspect that somebody in the FBI is behind all of the things that are happening, the things with the music box, and the things with people trying to put pressure on Alex, and the people who Smith is probably going to be turning her over to, they're FBI. how is getting involved with the FBI somehow a good idea? I mean, it, you, you understand it from her point. It doesn't seem like a good idea. And she tells Neil, you're crazy. And I notice that Neil doesn't dispute that because I'm sure he does agree that the plan seems crazy, you know, and especially the fact that she's a fence. As a fence, why would she want to get involved with the FBI? So the, she's got a multitude of reasons not to want to, to go along with this plan. But of course, she calms down enough to realize that she doesn't have a whole lot of options and that really she kind of did ask Neil for his help, albeit indirectly, through Mozzie. But like I said before, she knew Neil was going to get involved and I think that was intentional on her part that she, she actually wanted Neil to be involved. So she asked for his help. And given her experience with Neil she has to know that even his craziest plans seem to have a way of working out. So she goes along. Back at the FBI, Neil is updating Peter, Diana, and Jones. He knows that their theory is correct, that Professor Oliver is behind it all, using his course as a cover, and putting the students in the position of committing the actual crimes while he remains behind the scenes so that if they get caught, he can throw them under the bus and keep himself in the clear. The problem is they still have no real evidence, and it doesn't seem likely that they're going to get it unless they can take control of the situation and catch Oliver and the students with their hands in the cookie jar. And Alex's cougar hands are going to be the cookie jar, or at least the cookies. The next day, Neil... Oliver and the students working for Oliver are at an outdoor cafe discussing, let's say hypothetically discussing, with the word hypothetical in sarcasm quotes, possible crimes. Alex shows up, and Neil excuses himself to go talk to her, and you just know that this is a setup because they're close enough that Oliver and the students can see and hear that they're having an intense discussion, and they can catch snatches of the conversation. Not really enough to have a clear picture of what's going on or what the point of contention is, but enough to know that some deal between the two of them went south because someone backed out of the deal because Neil got spotted, and so now she's out money and something, something, something. Their exchange ends with Alex slapping Neil, which I'm sure was probably very cathartic for her under the circumstances. I'll bet she enjoyed that. Neil comes back to the table, and despite some casual prodding from Oliver, acts as if the situation with Alex is no big deal, not really worth mentioning. When Oliver says it sounds like some deal went awry, Neil says, hey, I'm reformed, remember? But he says it in an insincere, I'm lying, and we all know that I'm lying, but I'm saying it for public consumption, wink, 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 manner. Oliver leaves the group with the same insincere, I'm lying, and we all know I'm lying, but I'm saying it for public consumption, wink, 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 disclaimer to the students to continue their theoretical discussion. Wink, wink, wink. After Oliver leaves, the students ease Neil into discussing the situation with Alex. What's your history? Former girlfriend? Sounds like she's got a job for you, but you turned out not to be the smartest guy in the room. Okay, well, that's not really what Eric says, but that's what he means. And he's enjoying seeing Neil in a position where he seems to have to admit that. Neil downplays the job that he and Alex were discussing and throws Eric's words back at him that it's small time. Of course, this is just another ego play against Eric. Here's a job that Mr. Big Shot, Neil Caffrey, screwed up. And he's downplaying it because he's embarrassed that he screwed it up. And he doesn't want us to know how badly he screwed up an easy job. But I can show him up and regain my status as the smartest guy in the room by pulling off the job he screwed up. That's kind of the the train of thought that Neil wants Eric to have to get him to pursue doing this exchange of the crew bands. Yep. Eric is just still proving that he isn't the smartest guy in the room. In fact, he might not be the smartest guy in the room, even if he was in the room by himself, because he persuades the other kids to take the bait. The next day or so, the plan goes into action, and it seems to go off without a hitch. Russell Smith, who the kids think will merely be the courier, arrives as expected. Peter arrests him, and Jones takes over as the courier. The students make the swap by having Eric bump Jones, creating a situation where he puts down the briefcase, Veronica comes up to help with the distraction, while a third student, Manny, walks by and casually switches cases and walks away with the case containing the grants. Manny heads to the drop point, sets the briefcase down, and Neil walks up, drops a fake briefcase cover over the briefcase full of Krugerians, takes it to the school, and leaves it in a locker for Oswald. And of course, this is all being recorded on video by Peter and the team. Peter, Neil, and the teams are standing by in the van waiting for Oswald to show up and retrieve the briefcase, at which point they have their proof that they need to link him to the crime ring as the leader. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. At some point, we didn't see Jones had left the van, but we see him come back in. And he approaches Peter and gives him some bad news. Peter. Peter.
1: Can I talk to you?
2: We took Russell back to the bureau. He didn't call his lawyer. Who did he call? Play it. I'm not working with
0: the FBI. They got me with the case. What was I supposed to do? Tell him I can still
1: get him, Alex Hunter, but they got to post-bail. Why is Russell talking about Alex Hunter? Do you know who he's talking to? Went to a burner phone. Answer my question. Alex is in trouble. <sighs> you used us to take Russell out of play. If you jeopardize this case... I didn't, Peter. Diana? It's 8 o'clock, and I don't think Oswald's going to show. Yeah, I guess he conned all of us.
2: Check the locker.
0: I can understand why Peter's upset. Neil used him and the case to, as he puts it, take Russell out of play. It's the fact that Neil manipulated Peter, went behind his back, and used the case for his own purpose that really, I think, has Peter upset. Yes, he is upset that maybe Neil compromised the case, but I think it's as much that Neil manipulated him and withheld that information from him. But despite Neil's lack of transparency, regardless of the fact that Neil used the case to get Russell off of Alex's back, his actions didn't really compromise the case because the plan was a good plan. If Oswald was involved, and at this point it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that he was involved because someone had to set up the locker drop for him, he should take the bait and come and retrieve the case from the locker. We don't know who set up the locker drop and how that information got to Oswald. We don't know whether it was one of the students who went to Oswald and said, here's the plan, this is where we're gonna leave the briefcase, or if one of the students went to him and said, hey, here's our plan, and Oswald said, okay, leave the case in this locker, whatever it was. We don't know which one of those scenarios was was the case, but we do know that he knew it was gonna happen, and Neil and Peter knew it was gonna happen. So the Russell and Alex situation and the fact that Neil used the case behind Peter's back to get Alex some help and get Russell off her back is really kind of irrelevant at this point. It's just the lack of trust that's the issue. The lack of honesty that's the issue. At Neil's urging Peter and the team go to check the locker and discover the case is gone. The team had eyes on the locker the entire time, and no one came anywhere near it. So how did Oswald, or anyone else for that matter, get it out of there? Well, as Sherlock Holmes, arguably the world's greatest fictional detective, states, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. In this case, the whatever remains is that there had to have been some other way to access the locker. Neil finds it, a removable panel on the back of the locker, accessible from a utility closet, which was on the back side of the wall behind the lockers. Oswald improved on Neil's con. Back at Neil's apartment, Peter arrives to meet Neil and Alex. Except Alex isn't there. Her lawyer is. And her lawyer's Mozzie. Peter wants an explanation.
2: Someone's looking for Alex. Russell said he could deliver her, and we took him out of play before he could. Who's looking for her? Probably the same people who killed Kate. If Oswald has the coins, he'll try and fence them eventually. That's what I'm counting on,
1: and you're going to help make that happen. We're going to make Oswald reveal the Krugerans and the painting. Those coins belong to someone who probably wants him back, right? Tell me who. Uh,
2: Russell may or, or may not be an old connection from Detroit. ...of the Don Corleone persuasion. The Detroit mob? Yeah.
1: All right, I'm going to have to convince Oswald. I'm in with them.
2: Impossible.
1: He studies crime for a living. You need an expert on the Detroit mob to pull that off. I just found my expert.
0: The fact that the person looking for Alex was probably the same person responsible for the plane explosion that killed Kate and was supposed to kill Neil somehow makes sense to Peter, and it seems to mollify him, at least somewhat. But he's still stuck with the problem of how to get Oswald to reveal himself. The one thing going in Peter's favor is that Oswald will need to sell the coins. Of course, Peter says the coins belong to somebody who probably wants them back. It's not clearly explained at this point, or even really, even at all, how this helps Peter in getting Oswald to try and fence the coins, but The basic idea seems to be to create a situation which is so threatening to Oswald's well-being that he will be forced to sell the Krugerrands and ideally the painting in order to get out from under it. In the lecture hall at the school, we then see Oswald alone, gathering his books and such, when Peter walks into the back of the hall. He stands in the shadows where Oswald can't see him very well. And with Mozzie coaching him via an earbud, Peter tells Oswald he's called the Peacemaker, which is supposedly a term for a Detroit mob player. He tells Oswald that the Krugerands are his, and he wants them back. Oswald tries to bargain, but the deal just gets worse for him. Peter says the Krugerands were worth $2 million. He wants $3 million. The value of the Krugerands plus another million for his trouble. And he wants the money tomorrow, or else Oswald realizes that if the peacemaker really is who he says he is, that the end result was not going to be good for him no matter what he does. So we next see him negotiating with Alex to try and sell the crew grants, and then if they are painting. I would say Alex plays her part well, trying to lowball the professor. After all, she's not supposed to know that he's desperate for cash so he can get out of dodge, as it were, to try to escape the mob. So what would a person who doesn't know what his motives are, who is being approached to fence these things, what would they do? They would try to lowball. So it all just flows naturally. Eventually, after some back and forth, they agree on a price for the grants and the painting with her assurance that the money will be wired to a bank account today. And Oswald is very emphatic that it be today. As soon as he gives the bank information to Alex, Peter and the team spring into action and arrest Oswald. Alex turns over the grands and the Thayer painting to Peter, and he in turn hands her a ticket on what he calls a secure flight to Italy. I'm not exactly sure what this is supposed to be. The TSA has something called a secure flight program, which is designed to ensure that individuals whose names have been placed on the government's secret no-fly list are not allowed access to a commercial aircraft. It seems unlikely to me that this is what Peter is meaning, since everyone who's ticketed on a commercial flight originating within the U.S. or on a U.S.-based carrier is subject to the program, and that term does not refer to a specific type of flight, which is the context used here by Peter. So I'm guessing that what Peter is really referring to is some sort of special flight where the government has probably bought out all the tickets on the flight and is using it to move people who are in need of special security precautions, but not necessarily in need of high-level security precautions. Next, we see at the school that Peter walks into the lecture hall He takes to the lectern and announces that Professor Oswald will not be joining them in class today. Peter tells the students that he's from the FBI and that he is there to do some recruiting. Oh, and here are some of his colleagues. Several agents, including Jones, come into the lecture hall, and Neil also walks in with them. Jones and the other agents begin moving amongst the students, and they arrest Veronica, Eric, and Manny. Manny immediately begins trying to squirm out a responsibility by saying, Oswald made them do it. And he starts trying to negotiate to try and reveal information. As Peter and Neil follow Jones and the other agents and the three students outside where the students are then put into cars and hauled off, Diana calls Peter. She has something she needs to show him. Peter and Neil go their separate ways with Peter to meet Diana and Neil to meet with Alex. Neil meets Alex as she's getting loaded into a cab. She's got a lot of luggage and a large box. Neil tells Alex that the FBI searched Oswald's house and found several of the things he was suspected of stealing. Things like jewelry, Egyptian artifacts, and such. But there was a Matisse that he also supposedly had stolen, and the FBI couldn't seem to find it. And curiously enough, that would be about the same size as the box that she has there and is so concerned about. She says she'll keep an eye out for it. But Neil knows she has it. Alex knows Neil knows. Neil knows Alex knows he knows. Well, you know how it goes. Then they say what could be their final goodbyes to each other.
2: Alex, be careful. You too.
1: Someone's looking for me.
2: They're coming after me too.
1: That's the last piece of the music box.
2: I'm giving up my obsession. You're suggesting I give up mine? Kate's gone. The rest of us are still here.
0: It seems as if Alex is still holding out just a little bit of hope that Neil will want a relationship with her and that if he accepts the fact that Neil is gone, that it's time to move on maybe that relationship could be. It seems a very slim hope on her part, but she does seem to want to believe that maybe even the slim hope is enough. Meanwhile, Diana is showing Peter something about the music box that she's discovered. On the top of the box, there's an opening where Diana originally thought a cherub had fallen out. But in fact, it's a narrow opening leading to a tunnel with a slight ridge.
1: Whatever this thing's hiding, it's not the music. I think it's a keyhole. A key to what? Could we get it into x-ray? Not without alerting somebody. I don't want to take a hammer to it just yet. Mm, It could self-destruct. Wouldn't surprise me. Let's see if we can find that missing piece. Maybe our friend knows where it is.
0: Their friend, as Peter calls him, the person who they think might know where the missing piece is, is the mystery man that they tried to identify from the previous episode need to know. The person that Garrett Fowler had the appointment to meet with. But of course, we know that that person doesn't have it. We know that the missing piece is what Alex gave Neil. And you and I know that this is the end of the episode. Just a couple reminders. The official website at www.whitecollaredpc.com is where you and your friends can find links to follow this podcast, links to the various resources I've mentioned in the episode and that I've used to put things together. And you will also find show notes there, links to the new podcast apps website where you can find a podcast app that supports the enhanced features that this and many other podcasts are using and links to the White Collar Fandom Facebook group. You'll also find ways that you can contact me and ways that you can support the show financially. Thank you for listening, and be sure and join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on Season 2, Episode 4, By the Book. Until then, take care and God bless.